Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming at KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts, and now at WMBR, the MIT radio station in Cambridge. So we have Galen Mook, Executive Director of the Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition and co-host. Thanks, Nick, for having me. Eric, quick update because we are out and about. It is the start of Bike Month today, May 1st. We are doing May for Bike Month in Massachusetts. Uh, you can check out all the events at baystatebikemonth.org. Uh, we are literally just kicking off this afternoon, both in Sandwich, Massachusetts on the Cape with a bike rodeo, and also a uh, celebration in New Bedford at Cisco Brewery, including a little five-mile ride along the hurricane barriers. It can be very exciting. We have dozens upon dozens upon dozens of events you can check out all across the state, again, at baystatebikemonth.org. Um, and some of the quick news in Massachusetts, since Nick had asked me what's going on, uh, we've got some big news. Obviously, you tuned in last week. We are the number one bike-friendly state in the country, but we still have a long way to go. But some mm. of that bike-friendliness is expanding. My highlight is Cambridge, Massachusetts has the road opening of Memorial Drive on the Charles River. It's Saturdays and Sundays now, all weekend long. It is open for people on skates, on foot, on bike, really hang out, check it out, and that'll go all season long through the fall up until December. So if you're ever in Boston, head over to Memorial Drive in Cambridge uh, in the weekends and really enjoy yourself and let loose. Cool. And that's just for the month? No, it's actually all the way through December. Thanks to the Department of Conservation and Recreation to partner with the city of Cambridge, all of our state reps who put this out there, but it was a good collaboration. And this was always closed on Sundays, but now they've expanded it to Saturdays. Maybe the goal is to do it uh, all week long, but we'll start with the weekends, but we're doing it literally through the whole season. All right. One step at a time. Thank you, Galen. Now we're going to go to our Los Angeles co-host, Lindsay Sturman with Dutch Cycling Embassy Marketing Manager and author of books on people-friendly cities, Chris Brundlett. Welcome to Bike Talk. My name is Lindsay Sturman, your co-host. Something has been weighing on me. Why don't bike lanes just work? Some do, and they are amazing, and we need to blanket our cities with them, don't get me wrong. But in places like LA, we put in bike lanes, drivers resent them and point to low usage, whether it's true or not, and often get so enraged we end up ripping them out. But other countries do it. Some even have 80% bike usage. And despite having some amazing bike lanes, just look at New York City, Portland, Oregon, Santa Monica, and downtown LA, our mode share is still, in general, under 8%, New York and Portland, and 1% in LA. So what is going on? It turns out there might be a simple explanation and a simple solution. The Netherlands cracked the code on biking 40 years ago. In Amsterdam, then Rotterdam, Utrecht, The Hague, and then they decided as a country to export this knowledge for free to the rest of the world so we can learn what they know. So the country that gave us windmills is now helping us understand the power of bikeable cities which can replace the traffic, noise, pollution, danger, and dysfunction of car-clogged and car-centric cities. So how do the Dutch create bikeable cities? There are a ton of techniques and tactics and designs and engineering, but at the end of the day, it turns out it's really one thing, the speed of the cars. And when we talk about bike lanes, working or not working, I wanna be clear, we need them. We need more of them, we need them everywhere, and they work for many people and they definitely make it safer for those who are biking. But biking isn't scaling. It's not scaling up. And to help us unpack this, we have been talking to the experts. We are so excited to have Chris Bruntlett back on the show to continue this conversation. 
Chris Bruntlett is the marketing manager of the Dutch Cycling Embassy, which is an amazing organization set up in the Netherlands to export their incredible knowledge and 40 years of data and engineering to help the world become more bikeable. Chris, welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you so much for coming. So why are we struggling in America? Why don't bike lanes work the way they should? Hi, Lindsay. Yeah, it's good to be here. And what a question. Yeah, I wouldn't suggest that bike lanes aren't working in America. I would say that bike lanes as the one and only measure to get people cycling don't work anywhere. And this is one thing that's come out of decades of best practice in the Netherlands is that the most important part of the bike plan is the car plan. We have to reduce the speed of motor vehicles on our streets. We have to reduce the volumes of motor vehicles on our streets. We have to limit the access and challenge this assumption that cars should be able to drive from anywhere to everywhere in our cities at the speed that the driver feels most comfortable. And through traffic calming, through traffic circulation, that is pushing through traffic to strategic arterial roads, ideally on the perimeter of the cities, we're able to create these livable, safe neighborhoods where children can play, where people can walk and cycle, and they feel like they have ownership over their streets rather than the traffic that's driving through it quite quickly and causing all kinds of conflict and stress and noise and very hostile environment for the people that live along that street or visit destinations on that street. If we are to see mass cycling in America and other places in the world, we have to start taming the car in our cities. It's so true. Most people want a bike. It's one of our happiest memories as a kid. People love to bike, but when it's scary, a lot of us don't want to bike. So I guess the question is, how do you make it both safe and not so scary? And we read a lot about how the Netherlands in the cities has dropped the speed limit to under 18 miles an hour. Yeah, it's funny. Whenever you go to a city and start talking about cycling, there are people that would suggest, well, the weather here isn't suitable or the hills are too drastic or the distances are what's stopping people cycling. At at the end of the day, those are reasons, but they're not the main reason. And the main reason is almost always cars. It's traffic, it's feelings of safety, it's feelings of discomfort. People would love to be able to get on a bike or a pair of roller skates or whatever your wheeled vehicle of choice is. But at the end of the day, if they feel like they're putting their life in danger, if they feel high levels of stress, if they have to get that shot of adrenaline every time they leave their front door, then they're going to choose a different mode of transportation. And it does really come down to the speed at which those cars and trucks and buses and heavy vehicles are moving. The blanket speed limit here in the Netherlands on most streets is 30 kilometers an hour. That is 18 miles per hour. That's about 80% of the road network in built up areas. And then there is room for some faster streets, arterial roads. It's about 20% of the road network that are 50 kilometers an hour. That is 30 miles per hour. But the mantra here is mix where possible and separate where necessary. So in an ideal circumstance where we can reduce the speed of cars and the volume of cars to a point where mixing can take place between cyclists and motor vehicles, then great. And on those arterial roads where the speeds are at 50 kilometers an hour, we have to provide physical separation, not just along the bike lane itself, but all the way through the intersection that is protected intersections with bulb outs at the corners with refuges in the middle of the intersection so that the cycle track the segregated space carries on through the intersection but at the end of the day yeah it's about prioritizing safety over the convenience of drivers 
you're much more likely to survive a collision at this 18 mile per hour threshold. And so we should be doing all that we can, not just putting a sign on the wall, but by actually engineering our streets that force drivers to slow down, pay attention and act as guests in our residential streets rather than the owners of them. So when you guys have intersections with cars going 30 miles an hour, so basically the engineering and infrastructure forces the driver to slow down when they make a turn and turn across a bike lane. Yeah, it just comes back to this idea of systematic safety. And I think this is one area where the United States and other European cities differ. The United States tends to focus on changing user behavior trying to create the perfect road user, the perfect cyclist, the perfect motorist. Well, newsflash, that perfect road user doesn't exist. And I think one thing that the Netherlands figured out a long time ago or accepted is that humans make errors. They flaunt the rules either on purpose or accidentally. And we should be designing a road network that does not allow those mistakes and human error to result in serious injury and death. And that we can design a safe environment through engineering to reduce speeds, to reduce conflicts, to cause road users to cooperate with each other rather than compete with each other. On the 30 kilometer hour streets, it's engineering measures such as speed bumps, speed tables, chicanes, ball bouts, change in texture or material, all subtle cues that make the driver perhaps feel a little like they're driving faster than they actually are so that they put that foot on the brake and suddenly there's a heightened sense of awareness. And then on the 50 kilometer hour streets, the 30 mile per hour streets, the intersection is always the main conflict point. It's where the vast majority of collisions occur. And so if there is a roundabout scenario or whether it's a signalized traffic light intersection, actual engineering that's done to increase the turning radius of the motor vehicle, if they're turning right, for example, they have to do almost a 90 degree turn, which again, forces them to hit the brake automatically. But to visually acknowledge that cyclist or pedestrian that's coming up on their right and reduce the chance of a right hook that is claiming that the cyclist or pedestrian came through their blind spot, they came out of nowhere. As you mm -hmm. often hear, if you design the street and intersection correctly, then you actually force the driver to visually acknowledge them. And in a lot of cases, they have to actually yield to them automatically. Their priority is given to the pedestrian and cyclist. So again, it's systemic design. We don't accept dangerous environments when we use other modes of transportation with our streets and our roads because we prioritize driver comfort and convenience. We're willing to put up with all kinds of dangerous and unsafe conditions, and that needs to change very quickly. It's so interesting that the United States assumes that drivers will be perfect in the Dutch build around mistakes. So that's so interesting to me. So can you expand on that a little? Yeah, I've recently read a book by Jesse Singer. She's a New York-based author and used to work for Transportation Alternatives called There Are No Accidents. And she looks at this problem of not just road accidents, but general accidents in the United States. But I think she really compellingly makes the argument that this idea of a scofflaw motorist or a scofflaw cyclist is used by the traffic engineering profession as a scapegoat, as a reason not to point the finger at themselves as the cause of thousands and thousands of fatalities and death deaths each year. It becomes a way to deflect the blame from the people that design the streets onto the people that use the streets. And this is obviously incredibly problematic because the behavior that we use is dictated by 
the environment that we're in. And if we are on these wide arterial roads where the street trees have been removed for safety reasons and all the queues on this straight, wide street are telling us to go fast, we will inevitably put our foot on the gas. So when deaths and serious injuries happen along these corridors, the traffic engineering profession can point at the speeding motorist and say, no, it was their fault, when in fact it was the design of the environment itself that caused them to break the speed limit. That is so interesting and so true now that you say it, because I think that we are so stressed about traffic that the engineers and the DOTs just want to get as many cars through the system as fast as possible. And so that's just become the priority across the country. It's like, how do you reduce traffic? The idea of slowing things down is just anathema. (laughs) It almost like makes you stressed to hear it because you're like, I can't deal with a slower commute. It's already so awful. But of course, we've created this like catastrophic failure where we have to build more and more sprawl to fit all these cars because we have so much traffic. And it's really hard to do infill housing because where are you going to put all the cars? You know, where are you going to park them? We can't get off this hamster wheel. But I feel like you guys in the Netherlands have the answer. It's easy for me as a native Canadian who came to the Netherlands by choice to say, well, this is what you should do. But the fact of the matter is, I think the Netherlands recognized this hamster wheel a very long time ago, saw the warning signs in a road safety crisis and an oil crisis that occurred in the 1970s. And they set about jamming that hamster wheel and even reversing it the other direction because they saw where this was headed. They were filling in canals to make motorways. They were demolishing buildings to create surface parking. These beautiful medieval cities were being destroyed to make way for the automobile. There was, to their credit, a recognition that this was not the future they wanted for their cities, and they were able to stop it and even reverse it. Now, the damage has been done in cities like Los Angeles and elsewhere around the world. Another five decades of spinning that hamster wheel and building car dependence upon car dependence upon car dependence. But at some point, we do have to hit the brake and look at perhaps doing things in a different way, because you've just mentioned the problems that it causes. And we could sit here and talk for hours about the environmental problems, the social problems, the lack of equity and affordability that car dependence brings and physical health. The mental health, the stress, the explosive disorders. I mean, it causes ADHD. I mean, it does so many terrible things to our bodies and our minds. And it kills community. You know, you don't want to take a walk and there's nowhere to walk for many people. Like, where are you going to walk (laughs) along a street in LA with six lanes of traffic going 50 or 60 or 70 miles an hour? I mean, it's not pleasant to walk along the 405 freeway. (laughs) Nobody's doing that at night (laughs) to relax. So 18 miles per hour. Tell us about why that's such a magic number. Yeah, well, there's a huge body of research now that shows that that is kind of the threshold that the human body can take in terms of an impact with a motor vehicle. So you're about 90% likely to survive a collision at that speed. And once you get above 18 miles per hour, it exponentially increases the risk of, of death or serious injury. So 40 kilometers an hour is less than 50% and 50 kilometers, 30 miles per hour or greater you're almost guaranteed to not survive that collision. So for reasons, yes, of course, of safety, but also livability. And to reclaim our streets as places, we cannot have these fast-moving metal boxes that are creating all kinds of noise and stress and discomfort on our streets. So 30 kilometers an hour becomes the magic number here in the Netherlands. And this is the target that they're aiming for with majority of their road networks so that they can use those streets for other means. Of course, cars are welcome to use them. 
But through the design of the cycle networks, now suddenly all of those 30 kilometer hour streets can be considered a de facto bike route and not just the ones that are painted green on Google Maps or whatever bike map that you're using. You have this really fine grained grid of cycle routes that you can now use to connect every origin and destination in your city. When you're limiting yourself to just segregated bike lanes on arterial roads, well, the question becomes, how do you get to those protected bike lanes from your house? And if you're feeling unsafe in the first few hundred meters, you're still not going to get on a bike and use that protected bike lane, which is probably why some of those facilities in American cities and elsewhere are not getting the ridership that they otherwise would, because you still have to provide that door-to-door comfort. And a network is only as good as its weakest link. And if we have one or more weakest links, then you'll just choose another mode of travel. So basically, you can have great bike lanes. And we do. We have some great bike lanes in America, New York, Portland, Seattle, LA even. But if there's one moment of fear, adrenaline, hair raising, and danger, real danger, because we know that, as you said, it's like it's really dangerous, then most people just don't want to tolerate that. The vast majority, 99% of people do not want that level of stress and discomfort when they're traveling from A to B. It's not pleasant. It's not comfortable. And if you're working a stressful job, that's the last thing that you need on top of our stressful lives. There is tolerance when it comes to what we're willing and able to do. Wouldn't ride a roller coaster to work necessarily, (laughs) you know, because it's exciting, but it's not the most pleasant way to move from A to B. And so if we are to see, as I said, the mass, vast numbers of people cycling, then we have to make it as pleasant and mundane as here in the Netherlands. And this is the thing that a lot of people who come here will comment is cycling becomes almost uneventful, boring. You can ride next to somebody and have a conversation. And it's almost like a walk in the park in comparison to the conditions in a lot of cities. But that's through the design of the infrastructure and the networks that make that possible. And until you have those types of conditions, then most people will just stay away because it's perfectly acceptable to not want to put yourself or your loved ones through that kind of stress or discomfort. Roger Geller, who was the bicycle coordinator at the Portland Office of Transportation, he wrote a great paper. We'll put it in the show notes and it's on Google, four types of cyclists. And he broke it down into just four categories. You know, there's the people who will never cycle, but then there's the 1% are strong and fearless. And then up to 8% are enthused and confident. And then there's a huge group of say 70 or 80% who he calls interested, but concerned. Would you let your 10 year old? It's like, I feel like that's the test. And if you wouldn't let your 10 year old, basically I won't go in a bike lane where I ever feel afraid, but a lot of us are just cautious, cautious by nature. Is that what we're seeing is that some people can tolerate it or love it. And then other people are just, I don't want to feel like I'm going to die. That's exactly the case. Yeah. I think one of the really amazing things about coming to the Netherlands is you see firsthand the types of people that can cycle and will cycle when the conditions are correct. That's 70 to 80% that's interested but concerned. You would never see these people cycling in other places like in the United States. That is small children. That is the elderly. The demographic, the 65 to 75 demographic here in the Netherlands cycles more than any other age. <laughs> 30% of all journeys. Wow. Yeah. So people with physical disabilities, 16% of people with disabilities cycle, not necessarily on a bicycle, but on a three-wheeled tricycle or a hand cycle. There's more women than men cycling here in the Netherlands. So everything that we see 
elsewhere, the people that are currently cycling in those cities are not representative of the types of people that would cycle if you get the conditions correct. And that is the infrastructure, the traffic calming, the policy, all these ingredients that we export, quote unquote, via the Dutch Cycling Embassy. Cycling is the great equalizer. It's increasingly so now with electric bicycles, of course, but we shouldn't see it as just something that the fit, the brave, the hunched and helmeted do. It is something that virtually anybody can do, but we have to slow the cars tame the cars and create that space for those people to get out on their own two or three wheels. Having spent many years in Vancouver, Canada, as the mayor was building out an amazing network of cycling infrastructure there, the cycling numbers only ever reached about eight, nine, ten percent and have kind of leveled off at that rate. I think it is a product of there was never a stick to go with the carrot. It was always Let's create these nice bike lanes on certain streets, but we're never going to disrupt the harmonious flow of car traffic and actually make measures that would make driving indirect, inconvenient, more expensive, because this is kind of a political hot potato for a lot of people. The infrastructure almost becomes the easy part. The discouragement of driving is something that not a lot of politicians are willing to take on, unfortunately. The Dutch, and you've taught us on Bike Talk about winners. Shared streets, cars as guests. Is that really the standard, the winner? I love the name so much. Yeah, winner itself is more of an idea than a specific typology. It came out of this period of experimentation in the 1970s in the Netherlands. And it started out as kind of a protest movement. Parents were tired of racing through traffic outside their front door. Their children were no longer able to play in the street. So they set up some barriers on either end of their street that acted as modal filters that would only allow local residents kind of jumped on this and said, okay, can we create streets that are an extension of the living room? Vunerf means living street. Can we reclaim this space outside our front door for playing children, for neighbors to gather and cook and eat meals, places where people want to stay rather than places where people pass through? And itself, it has a number of defining features, a lot of which I mentioned earlier in terms of the change of texture, the removal of the curb altogether so that it's just one continuous space that forced the drivers to slow down, pay attention and make it clear that there are the guests in this space. Now, there's been a recognition that a 15 kilometer an hour space is quite difficult, that the redesign of a lot of these streets is quite expensive. So there's an acceptance that 15 kilometers an hour isn't going to work everywhere. But if we apply these principles and ideas, maybe to 20 kilometers or 30 kilometers an hour, using the same principles and restricting the access of the cars to these streets to only residents that live on that street and have to park on that street, then we're going to get the same types of benefits. But it does take buy-in from the community. It does take some degree of political leadership. And maybe with the way that the housing market is developed in places like the United States, from the development community, from the real estate community as well, to help them buy into this idea. So recently learned from you about the Monderman's staircase. Can you explain that? Yeah, this is a really interesting theory from psychologist, traffic engineer Hans Monderman, who was a Dutchman himself. And it comes back to this idea that being into the brain of the motorist, of the driver, and creating behavior that you want rather than that they can get away with, willing and able to travel at a speed of 30 kilometers an hour or lower for about six minutes after they leave their front door, and then a speed of 50 kilometers an hour 
for another nine minutes or so. And then after that, they're willing to travel basically unlimited distance at speeds in excess of 50 kilometers an hour. So we have a period of about 15 minutes where we can get the driver from leaving their home or their origin, giving them the opportunity to use these local access roads to travel at a slower speed with the understanding that they are a guest in this space, pushing them out to an arterial road where they're able to put their foot on the gas and travel a little bit faster. And then after nine minutes or so, the arterial road will take them to the motorway or the expressway that will get them to their destination. So when we come back to this idea of 80% of our road network being these local access streets with 30 kilometer an hour design speed, we can hopefully design this road network that gets them off of those streets within six minutes onto an arterial road and then from there, another nine-minute journey to the motorway, they're largely willing and able to accept those types of travel times and those speeds. So we shouldn't think that they always want to go 100 miles an hour uh, <laughs> every time they leave their front door. So it, it's such a powerful idea because, as you said, with a one-earth, a living street, is that it really creates an opportunity for people to kind of take back their streets and say, I want my street to be for me and I want it for my neighbors and not a freeway for other people to get from not my house to not my house. <laughs> it's something I have nothing to do with. And I slow down on my street because I don't want to hit my neighbors. I don't want to hit their cat. I feel like I'm much more careful on my own block because I want my street to be slow. So it really creates this opportunity for people all over the world to kind of own their own streets, especially if people will go six minutes. That's a few blocks. So it sort of opens up the possibility of superblocks, Barcelona superblocks. Have you seen that? Yeah, and I think every city around the world is doing it a little bit differently. Barcelona, as you said, is implementing this superblocks idea because they have a perfect grid system. Every ninth road is designated an arterial, and then the eight streets in between are more of these local access streets with very limited access to motor vehicles. And so they're freed up for children playing and the people that live on those streets to use that space. In London and other cities in the UK, they're implementing what they call low traffic neighborhoods, which is a similar idea, but they don't have the perfect grid. So they're creating a hierarchy of streets. And this is something straight out of the Dutch playbook, recognizing that streets should only serve a specific purpose. If we have local access streets, they should only be used by the residents and local businesses, and we shouldn't have through traffic racing through them. And similarly, these arterial roads, the through roads, cannot function as residential corridor or a commercial corridor. They need to serve the sole purpose of moving cars. And so if we recognize that every street has to serve a different purpose and it shouldn't try to serve multiple purposes, then we get a better sense of what our streets can do and who are using them. Because right now, this kind of free-for-all that allows cars to use uh, every street in infinite amounts. And it's been worsened by these traffic navigation apps that are giving drivers shortcuts away from the traffic. They're now using residential side streets to bypass that traffic. It's creating really unsafe conditions and hostile conditions where we should be living and working and playing. And then all you want to do is be in a car because the only safe place is a car. So it's almost like a race to the bottom of getting into a bigger and bigger, heavier and heavier car. Now we have cars in America with step ladders. You need to like step up. I'm not even kidding. Three steps to get into these crazy trucks. That's exactly right. And come back to this death spiral of car dependence and car dominance. The one reason that most parents cite why they don't walk or cycle with their child to school in the morning is because of the fear of 
all the other cars with the complete lack of recognition that they're making that problem worse themselves. And you were saying with the one ARF, a living street is 15 kilometers an hour. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That's so it's nine miles a, an hour, right? Almost a crawling speed. And, <laughs> uh, this is, I think, the most extreme example. It's obviously the most successful example, but it's perhaps not perfectly translatable elsewhere. It's one end of the spectrum. Now, there are, of course, other streets where the cars have been removed completely, and I'm lucky enough here in Delft to live on a completely car-free street. So there are different examples that we can use. But at the end of the day, we just have to make that statement of priority and ask those people that live along this street what they would rather see. Because I think the vast majority of them would say that they would like a place for their kids to be able to play outside. And it's something we did experience during the pandemic was this reduction in traffic and people were suddenly able to get outside and sometimes meet their neighbors for the first time and use that space outside their curb in a very different way. And it sounds like it really all comes down to the speed of the cars. It just doesn't work if the cars are going, as you say, like over 18 miles an hour. I think that's the key to success here in the Netherlands in terms of the great walking and cycling rates that you see, the great safety record that you see, and qualitatively, the amazing livability of their cities here. They're such a pleasant place to be outside and great for your physical health, your mental health, your social health. It all comes down to the fact that they've tamed the motor vehicle in their cities. Wow. Chris, thank you so much. This has been so fun to talk. No, it really was my pleasure. And if anybody has any further questions, I would certainly direct them to the Dutch Cycling Embassy. And we're always happy to help on this and many other topics. Amazing. For some good news in active transportation, we now talk to Michael McDonald, who spent the last few years advocating for a better street design in Northeast Los Angeles. When LA Metro asked his Eagle Rock community to vote on one of three choices for the implementation of its multi-city bus rapid transit system, the community designed the beautiful boulevard. Finally, on April 28, 2022, the Metro board unanimously approved the beautiful boulevard plan. It includes a dedicated bus lane, a protected bike lane, on-street parking, and a car lane in each direction. This was never a foregone conclusion. Beautiful Boulevard was the proposal that we made to Metro of, hey, here's a solution for how we can make this work and balance the different concerns and needs. But, you know, in the end, what our proposal did is save those things that people were concerned about. We saved the medians. We saved the on-street parking. Um, and, you know, through the process, that on-street parking ended up being even more valuable because we very quickly went into a pandemic where all of a sudden, um, most of the only way that a lot of restaurant and, you know, bar businesses were able to survive was to utilize some of that parking for alfresco outdoor dining. Um, and if, you know, it had gone to the solution that Metro had started with, that they were going to default to, all of that would have been removed. And I think that really would have impacted and harmed um, the bottom lines of our local businesses. So this BRT is bus rapid transit and it was going through not just your neighborhood, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, um, it basically connects between three different transit lines. So, and I'm using the old terms, but because that's what I'm more familiar with, but the, the red line, which is a subway, which connects North Hollywood to downtown, the orange line, which uh, kind of continues that service. Uh, it's a bus rapid transit service uh, through the uh, San Fernando Valley. 
Um, and then, uh, so those are both west of the community I live in, Eagle Rock. And then east of where I live uh, is where Pasadena is. And Pasadena uh, has the Gold Line uh, light rail service that runs through it and continues further eastward to other communities, but also um, connects into Union Station in downtown Los Angeles. But we sort of sat in this, of course we have local bus service, which can be very slow, but we didn't have a high quality, um, you know, efficient and dependable service like one of these sort of rail lines um, that we could connect to. And so yeah, bus rapid transit is basically light rail on wheels. Um, I'm assuming listeners are familiar with it, but it would connect us to these other communities, but then also connect us to these other transit services. Other transit services being the the train. Yeah, the, the train. Yeah, so red line, gold line, orange line, and then also actually Metrolink, which is a um, kind of heavy rail uh, service, which you know provide you know provides connections throughout California, but. Um, most importantly for people in my community, it would take us to the Burbank airport. Mm -hmm. And so this had to be fought for in every community. Metro had to do outreach. You had to have community meetings. And I don't know if you were able to convince anybody, but you were able to get the support you needed for your plan. Yeah. And I'll just kind of like point out, like, so I would say in general, there are probably five defined communities that this, you know, this project serves, Pasadena, Eagle Rock, uh, Glendale, Burbank, and North Hollywood. And for the most part, all four of the other areas, because I think they had leadership in place, um, they found ways to make the project work for them. Uh, I think, for example, Glendale had, you know, very quickly early on, uh, sort of embraced this project and provided very thoughtful feedback to Metro to make it better than what Metro is proposing. Uh, but like I said, in our community, our, our, we didn't really have a elected leader uh, to represent us because of um, you know, criminal investigations that were going on. And so we sort of had to do that on our own. Um, and I think it was a really, like, in some ways, I hope that other communities don't have to go through this process. It was kind of, it was very difficult and it's a lot to ask. And if you think about equity, um, you know, a lot of communities don't have the resources and the people who have the privilege of having, you know, time on their hands to be able to volunteer, you know, countless hours to, you know, advocate for something like this. I'm lucky that I have some of that privilege in my community. Besides myself, I'm an architect, so I'm not directly related to transportation, but I also work in a field that deals with, you know, uh, balancing both, you know, design and creativity along with kind of codes, which I think has some similarities to transportation. There were lots of other, you know, professionals that had other skill sets that we were able to kind of work together and utilize our skill sets to contribute meaningfully towards this project. Um, and so, yeah, very, you know, once we had an idea, I think that like in the end, a, a good idea is like, uh, that kind of kicks everything else off because if you don't have a good idea, you're going to have a hard time um, organizing, but we were able to, you know, uh, coalesce support around um, this uh, idea very quickly. Um, we were meeting the, the needs of lots of our different stakeholders and also stakeholders that I think historically organizations like Metro have had trouble connecting with. For example, in Eagle Rock, we have a lot of great schools, both kind of like elementary high school, but then also a major liberal arts college, Occidental College. Parents who are raising their kids often don't have time to go to 
metro meetings to hear about what you know is, you know is being planned and even if they do they don't have time to kind of digest those and figure out you know whether it makes sense or not so we on our own reached out to different PTAs and we presented our idea to those PTAs and very quickly we found that parents have a, you know a very strong opinion that they would like streets to be safer they would like their kids to be able to walk and bike to school and they would like um, to have more family friendly streets um, these are not views that if you go to you know a public hearing you necessarily hear as the majority but it seemed like there was a lot of supporting Eagle Rock for making our streets safer like that uh, another interest was our business owners. Like I said, if uh, Metro was left to its devices on this project, I think a lot of them would have been harmed by losing this parking that they depend on by having a street that kind of continued being a cut through or a pass through street rather than a destination that supports their businesses and brings them more customers. When we were able to engage directly with business owners, we found them very uh, thoughtful, open-minded and responsive to like, oh, actually I would like a, a place that is more of a walkable community. I mean, we had business owners who compared, you know, the possibilities of this project to, um, you know, areas like Third Street in Santa Monica, which is a walking only street or Larchmont Village, um, which is a street that has very slow car traffic on it and is really much more of a walking street than a through street. Um, so, you know, bringing those uh, constituencies into the mix and us reaching out and talking to them where otherwise they might've been overlooked, I think was a really important part of reframing this project around um, what the entire Eagle Rock community was actually looking for. Well, so did I say uh, congratulations? You were doing this for, <laughs> yeah. for a long time. Yeah, maybe we should have started off with it. I kind of just got into the guts <laughs> of what you know it was, but yes, after, um, you know, over three years of advocacy, we were able to uh, succeed this past week. The Metro Board gave its final approval for this project, incorporating a design that was um, really drawn from the beautiful Boulevard proposal that we put out there. Um, and I think it's a really great win for, um, you know, not only Eagle Rock, but all of Los Angeles by um, showing that, you know, we can make these projects in a thoughtful, smart way that makes our, you know, that improves our communities rather than, um, you know, taking away something, which I think that um, if we had not saved the medians, if we had not saved the parking, if we had not saved the bike lanes, um, it would have been taking away some something from our community. Um, so I'm really looking forward. I think that the plan that they have is pretty fantastic. I think there's still some kinks to work through and um, I have some confidence in our council member and ourselves and our uh, engagement with Metro at this point that we've kind of shown uh, that we can work through um, challenges and problems to make them work. Um, and I think that, you know, in the two or three years uh, when this uh, line is installed, I think it's really going to transform our, you know, community's main street for the better. I think it's going to look pretty amazing. So good. And where can we see it online? Yeah, so our website is eaglerockforward.org. Uh, so Eagle Rock and then forward. Um, and we have uh, the kind of fly-through rendering that Metro produced on that website, um, as well as kind of information. And, you know, over the next couple of years, we'll be using the website to provide people with updates along the way. Um, 
I think that, I mean, basically if you search North Hollywood to Pasadena BRT, you'll pull up the Metro website and they still have a website there. I think theirs is a little bit more kind of legally formatted. It, uh, you know, the, the process of going through an environmental review is a legal process. And so there's a lot of, you know, history of documents of uh, studying and providing analysis for, analysis for different options and then addressing, you know, the concerns about traffic and impacts that this project may have. The fly-through rendering that Metro produced is really pretty spectacular. It shows how the street would operate during rush hour. So it's sort of like for people who are concerned about traffic, it's sort of like a worst case scenario. Um, and in that case, it shows that there's not, you know, it doesn't, the project wouldn't create gridlock. It also shows a street that I think functions a lot uh, safer and better. The current bike lanes right now that are on the street are going to be upgraded to being a combination of protected bike lanes and parking protected bike lanes, much more family friendly. It looks like the design of the street will encourage uh, slower driving speed. So we won't have people going down this, you know, surface street, 60 miles an hour. You know, it should be people driving at much more normal speeds that don't create, you know, horrific crashes like we've seen on the street over the last few years. But yeah, I think it's going to be really spectacular transformation. Hopefully we're learning from all of this so that, you know, we can terraform Earth before we have to do that up in space. You know, this project, obviously, when you talk about transit, it's a major, you know, environmental issue. Um, greenhouse gas emissions from passenger vehicles here in Los Angeles are our highest, our largest contributor uh, towards climate change. So we need to be finding ways that we're making more sustainable streets. Just talking to the growing pains of this project, this was the first major bus rapid transit project funded by Measure M. Metro has a term, something like full BRT. You're, you're taking all the elements of bus rapid transit rather than, you know, in some parts of Los Angeles, we have sort of rush hour only bus lanes. But this is, you know, talking about uh, 24 seven bus only lanes, dedicated stations that are sort of like elevated platforms where you can prepay and then board very quickly, similar to the way that light rail or, or a subway might work. And so this is the first of, of you know, those Measure M projects, and there's other ones coming along the way. So I hope that Metro has learned a lot, both from what they can do with the design of a project, but also with the important different ways of how to approach communities and do outreach to make sure that they are acknowledging and responding to uh, every community's individual, you know, concerns and needs. Yeah, because that is something that Metro is learning, <laughs> has been learning the hard way. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for all your work. Thanks, Nick. I hope to get to you get some, maybe a Street Sea Award or something. <laughs> or is that? I don't. I don't do it for that. I do it for have you know connecting with my neighbors and making a safer street. And I, I like, I love my community, and I think that um, this is going to do a great thing. And I, I mean, I, I take a little bit of pride in you know me and others really uh, stepped up to I think preserve a lot of the things that people were concerned about, and even. Um, you know, there's a small contingent of people in Eagle Rock who are not happy with this project and they might never be happy with it when it's complete. But I think that, um, you know, our efforts have advanced uh, some of their, you know, addressed a lot of their concerns about we're not going to have our landscape medians thrown out, you know, just dismantled. We're not going to lose like, you know, the vast majority of our parking on Colorado Boulevard. So I think it, it has done some real good for the neighborhood. All right. I'm sure you'll be doing more stuff. So <laughs> Take care. Bye.
That was Michael McDonald with The Beautiful Boulevard in Northeast Los Angeles. As we're talking about victories for biking and walking, car-free JFK Drive in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park was made real last Tuesday in a contentious vote after a two-year fight to make space for people outside of cars. I found someone on bike Twitter to comment, Stacy Randecker. They did an incredible job of showing up, signing up people, rallying people, um, having events there for families to try and attract more people in to the space and as a movement, you know, people that might have been enjoying it, but wouldn't have necessarily spoken up, um, didn't know how or where or aren't used to that. They activated a lot of people who were not uh, previously. And it's been wonderful. They're really doing the city's job in terms of, well, how do we solve these problems of access? You know, no one wants people to feel like they can't come to the park, which is completely laughable because there are so many ways via transit. The parking garage is still there. The driveway to it is still open. It's just, it's it's expensive and it's this whole, whole other like scandalous endeavor. The museums have paid their lobbyists a lot of money to come up with a strategy that is anti-people, pro-car, they had prevailed largely. They still have my supervisor brainwashed. Shimon Walton, who is the president of the board, uh, he was one of the four dissenting votes and was uh, very vocal about it. He's the one who referred to it as recreational redlining. It's sad that it's, it's come to that and that that's the way they feel. But I also feel there should be the equivalent in Bayview Hunters Point around the entire edge of San Francisco, the Embarcadero, Market Street, Valencia, all of these great streets should, should also be car-free. No one should have to feel that they have to pick up and commute to such a thing. They should have easy access to it near them. Do you think that having won this makes it easier to make those some of those other places car-free? Do you think that'll happen? No? I hope so. It shouldn't have been about just one. We should have had a list of I don't know, 50 such corridors that mm-hmm. should be car-free. Call me Stacy Overton or whatever you want, but we have to start shifting this. It's not yes or no, up or down. It's which ones. We need many, many places like this so that we have a connected, low-cost protection network for people to travel throughout the city for whatever they want. No one asks people why they're getting in a car to drive. It's not like everybody's driving to work every trip they make. They're going to the store. They're going to the friend's house. I mean, think of the term Sunday drive. It doesn't matter why people are on a bike or out walking. They have every right to do it without fear from cars. And everyone should have that access near to where they live. So that was one of the things that the opponents were trying to do is to say that people on bikes are, they're just doing it for fun. And people in cars are getting to work. Right. Um, that Especially for Great Highway. I shouldn't even call it by its old name. It's the Great Walkway. That's what it should be. That is nearby Carfree JFK. It's the two-mile stretch of former roadway alongside Ocean Beach that during the pandemic, well, at the beginning of the pandemic, and what happens oftentimes is the winds will blow the sand from the beach onto the highway. They have to send crews out from the city to to clear it so that cars can drive on it. 
Well, when the pandemic happened, the supervisor that has that district said, this seems kind of silly. Nobody's supposed to be going anywhere. So we're not going to send crews out to sweep the sand away so that cars can drive on it. Like, we're just going to close it and people can use it if they want um, on foot, on on bike. Mm -hmm. And just like that, we had a new park. Wow. And it was fantastic. And it still is, but now it's available only see Saturday starting afternoon <laughs> through uh, 6 a.m. Monday mornings and on holidays. Okay. Is that the what you're calling the great walkway? Yep. There's a lot going on in your city. I guess maybe you're just getting started, I hope. Oh yeah. I mean, we need Valencia Street in the mission end to end to be car free. That's where all of our great restaurants are. Um, well, not all of them. I mean, we have tons of them, but it's a, it's a, such a rich and vibrant corridor and it has, we've made street dining permanent. So we should close it off to cars as well. Embarcadero 35 years ago, Loma Prieta earthquake brought down the Embarcadero freeway. And at the time, then mayor or Agno said, take it down. We're not rebuilding this. He lost re-election because of that decision, uh, but it was the right thing to do. So this area that people use and is so popular was absolute squalor because it was underneath the highway, yeah. right along our waterfront, but it didn't go far enough. You know, there's still cars on there. There, It's just a surface street. It's like a big fat boulevard now with transit running down the middle of it. I think there shouldn't be cars on any of it, but at least on the Eastern lanes. That's one of the things I'm adamant about is getting rid of cars on the Embarcadero, which would help because that's on the Eastern side of San Francisco, as opposed to JFK. Um, and then certainly the Great Walkway, are, which are on the Western sides of San Francisco. So give more people access to these types of incredible, you don't have to worry about it. Let your kids run areas. All right, what kind of bike community are you involved in? You're on bike Twitter. Oh yeah, bike Twitter. Yeah, I I am associated with the kids save people. My kids are teenagers. Um, they aren't little like theirs are. Kids save people, you said. Yeah, kids save, kids save SF. They're the ones who were the rallying force behind Car Free JFK out there slogging, getting people signed up to write letters and give public comment, which I don't know, I think went on for like eight hours <laughs> on, um, on Tuesday when they were voting on it. And, and that's not like, that's the first and last time that we gave comment on car free JFK. I mean, I I've done it at, at least, I don't know, I think seven times just mm -hmm about car-free JFK. That's ridiculous to take that long to make a good decision on something that should just be. Hopefully some of this will get automated or like you said, a list of places that's just, we're going to have this many and where, not whether. Like New York, they're all transit, transit all. Transalt, is it? Transalt. Their proposal is incredible. The 25, they want 25% of streets. I totally agree. That's the way to do it. That sounds achievable and more equitable. That's the kind of things that our cities should proactively be doing. They should be looking for ways to make this happen instead of car coddling. Stacy, aka driving Ms. Stacy on Twitter, the spokesperson. Is it the spokesperson? A spokesperson? That's just a I know. Oh, oh, I put that on there. I'm like, I'm like. I'm a spokesperson. Get it? 
<laughs> I, I speak about slips. <laughs> yeah. And I heard sometimes you get kind of spicy. I am known that. Yeah. My comments are always pretty heated because I just keep thinking, what will your grandchildren who are absolutely going to be suffering unless something changes dramatically about how we're treating this world? What would they think of you sitting there saying, oh, we should totally just keep driving. We we want our kids to think further than just the now, you know, to plan for their their future, you know, not just like, oh, good time, Charlie, go out and have fun and not think about tomorrow. And yet our whole elected body in this city and many others are doing just that. They're thinking only about the next election and the voters that they want to vote for them. They're not thinking about how do we make a better city overall? How do we make our citizens healthier? How do we make our city function better? Everything cleaner. It's maddening. But you won this one. Somebody voted for it. And now it's just a matter of we should be pushing no more one at a time, no more two years to get something done. There should be a whole raft, not one focus, just like here are seriously 50 corridors we want. And, and it's not even like which ones are we going to do? It's like, which ones are we doing first? We have to start pushing to make things happen swifter. I could see San Francisco being like a Paris. We're actually, supposedly, they used to call us like the Paris of the West in the late 18, early 1900s or something. But I don't know what we've done to really keep up with that. <laughs> well, this is your chance. I hope so. I'd love to see it. Biking Miss Stacy. Thanks for coming to Bike Talk and talking. Thanks for having me. It was fun. And now word from Uncle Dan, my spiritual advisor. Uncle Dan here, Brother Dan here. It's fabulous talking to you. I hope you're having a great day. And every day is a great day. And uh, bike talk, transportation for our world is, is so important. Every day is a new opportunity to, to use our brains and, and make uh, the reality of bike talk. And uh, basically, bike talk would help everyone. Concentrate your fantastic brains on on uh, bike talk, okay? I love you. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and run all around, run all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and run all around, run all around. Get that car out of my way, I wanna ride my bike today. Keep it fit, get me there, I won't go sinking up the alley behind.